This is the sound of the new Raspberry Watermelon Dunkin' Refresher. And sure, your ears might be all like, nope, that's just the sound of an ordinary iced coffee shaking in a cup. But this Sonata, created from a sweet yet subtly tart blend of raspberry and watermelon flavors harmoniously joining in a cup? It could only be the new Raspberry Watermelon Dunkin' Refresher. Try it and all the Dunkin' Refreshers this summer. Dunkin' Iced. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. She is so disconnected. We expect her to respond like a regular human being would if their child was gone. Wait a minute. She hadn't been in the regular world for a while. She lives every day in the Lori world. Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime, and you are in for a treat today, especially if you're interested in getting, I don't know how interested you are in this, but in getting inside the mind of Lori Vallow Daybell. We've got two phenomenal guests for that, and we've got another amazing investigator, uh, we've had a bunch of investigators on, former investigators on this week, and they are bringing amazing perspective to a super wild and wacky story. Uh, as we know, it is now week six of the Lori Vallow Daybell trial. Each side told Judge Boyce that they rest their case. The defense called no witnesses, prompting an obvious question that we're going to get into. Is Lori Vallow's crimes, are Lori Vallow's crimes indefensible? Uh, closing arguments are expected to begin tomorrow, Thursday, and a lot of people are predicting a very fast uh, deliberation and uh, an even faster verdict. But uh, it's hard to always uh, judge what a jury is thinking. That's part of what we will be talking about tonight. It is the trial of the so-called doomsday mom, the wildly twisted story of a seemingly loving mother, a self-proclaimed devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who clearly veered way off course and became involved in the deaths of as many as five people, including her very own children. Best guest, welcoming her back to the show, Dr. Ildiko Tabori. She was featured in the A&E documentary about another dysfunctional family, the Menendez brothers, and that's how we met her. She received her PhD in clinical psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology at Los Angeles back in 2003 and has been a practicing licensed psychologist and neuropsychologist since 2004. And she's the therapist to comedians in Hollywood. Imagine that. Um, Dr. Roger Rhodes is a senior therapist at the Pace Center in Greenville, South Carolina, specializing in dysfunctional relationships. He's looking pretty frozen at the moment, so I hope he unfreezes. Uh, and he has worked with inmates inside the prison system, so uh, he can give us some perspective on that. And last but certainly not least, and the first time uh, to survive in the survivor, and very glad to have him, Jim Eggleston is a retired uh, FBI special agent for more than 27 years. He maintained a top-secret security clearance with special access to sensitive compartmentalized information. Jim was one of the original members of the Arizona Child Abduction Response Team and also a member of the FBI's National Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team. 
Um, and I believe uh, some of these were uh, teams were used uh, to try to find JJ and Ty Lee, which we're going to ask him about. He is now the founder and owner of Baseline Investigations. Uh, quick reminder, you can follow us on Facebook, Insta, Twitter at Podcast STS. Patreon and YouTube memberships are available to support us. The merch store is open, and my lovely mom, Carm, is doing a special meet and greet on May 18th for Patreon and YouTube members. Uh, Jim, to you first. Um, first time on, uh, your uh, just your overall perspective on this case. You're an investigator for 27 years with the FBI. You've seen and done it all. Um, where does this rank? So I didn't follow this particular case closely in the news, like I do with a lot of cases, but I certainly am very aware of it. And this falls into one of the categories that we learned about as investigators with specialized training and experience in child abductions. This would have fallen under the category of what we would call a FACA case, F-A-C-A, false allegation of child abduction. And basically, whenever you have a missing child case, unfortunately, one of the first groups of people that you look at are the family members or the caretakers who are responsible for that child. And while trying to support them and without being accusatory, you want to get their statements down very quickly. First, because they should have the most recent, most valuable information about the child's behavior, conduct, what they were wearing, where they should have been, when did they disappear, when were they last seen. But also you want to start kind of looking at them as possible suspects. And uh, with this particular case, there were a lot of red flags that were raised uh, that uh, fall right in line with what we see in a FACA case. Um, the children were not reported missing for a long period of time. The report of where they were turned out to be false. Uh, the conduct of the family, while you can never really read too much into somebody's conduct, everybody responds to grief and trauma differently. But when uh, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell were contacted in Hawaii and notified and served with the papers to produce information about the children, their response was pretty cavalier from what I saw. So those are the types of things that, to me, based on my experience, based on my training, really stood out about this particular case. And uh, since I have you right now, um, Chandler PD, which is close to where you are in the Phoenix area, uh, they took, you know, they are taking heat because Charles Vallow sort of blew the proverbial whistle. Uh, you see him on body cam footage basically saying he fears for his life uh, and then wound up dead after that. Right. Um, in any way, you know, I am very pro-law enforcement. Let me start there. But uh, do, do you think in any way that the ball was dropped here because these kids seem to be missing for a very long amount of time before any real action was taken? Well, um, so Ch Chandler Police Department is a very good agency. I've worked directly with a lot of their investigators over the years. They were also members of the Arizona CART team, the child abduction response team. Um, I worked with them on a task force. Uh, also involving child victims of prostitution and internet exploitation. So they're a very good agency with a lot of very good dedicated investigators. Regarding your particular question, one of my questions would be, when that homicide took place, did they go back as an agency, did they go back and look at prior calls for service, either involving him or his address or the people around him, 
that would be something that in best circumstances should have been done. Um, you know, depending on how his death was reported and, and how first officers responding to that reacted to it, uh, that may have been overlooked. But that would have been something that ideally should have been done. And what that would have done would have been to recall those calls that he made to police, the contacts that he had with police where he reported his concerns and suspicions that might have led to a different path for that investigation. And forgive me, because you may have said this in your opening uh, salvo, but uh, this the the uh, Arizona Child Abduction Response Team, uh, this chart team, was it? Were they deployed for JJ and Tylee in this case? I, I don't know specifically about that. Uh, this is something that typically the AZ CART team would have been involved in, and definitely the FBI CARD team on a national level. But in both cases, those teams are only activated when the uh, agency responsible for the initial investigation requests assistance. It's not something that the FBI or the AZ CART team goes and tries to you know, start their own investigation. They only respond to a request for assistance. And, and I, I believe they were used, but uh, I'd have to double check that. But I remember reading that. Uh, Dr. Ildiki Tabori, uh, Catherine writes here, and this came up in yesterday's show, which I'm leading into right now. Uh, Joel, when your panelists talk about why we're interested in trials, I haven't heard them say this. It's looking for justice when people commit crimes. News just tells us about the crimes. Um, why is there this? I don't know, incredible appetite for a case like the Lori Vallow Daybell trial or the Menendez brothers, which I know you're, you know, you were more focused on. They're very different, obviously, but why the thirst and the hunger uh, from the public, uh, you know, regarding these uh, types of cases? I think we're looking for train wrecks. We see these pretty people <laughs> who seem to be well adjusted in the world. And then all of a sudden there's this implosion of mess and we're like rubbernecking like we do when we're passing, you know, a, a car accident on the road. And we're looking for, for anything dramatic, any blood, any guts, any crazy people running around in circles. Uh, Dr. Raj, you're looking yeah. a little... You're looking a little frozen, but your voice is there. Uh, you care to add to that? I mean, we've been talking about this. I've asked you this question before, but why this infatuation might be a strong word, but a definite uh, voracious appetite for true crime and for trials. We just came off of Alec Murdoch where I met you, and now we've got Lori Vallow-Daybell. Why are people so invested in this? Because they want to be the one who answers the question correctly. You know, we're not too far off a of grade school. And so them being able to say, here's the answer and be the correct answer. The feeling, the, the, the uh, excitement of being the number one answer and it being correct. Wow. Then, then you're smarter than the FBI. You're smarter than therapists. You're smarter than the legal system. Uh, ooh, who don't want to be smarter? It's a uh, lot of lot of ego, but you're right, Raj. I feel like I'm uh, about 13 years old, so uh, <laughs> I would have to agree with you on that. Um, yeah. MC Spunky, hello, Joel and STS Nation, uh, and YouTube's very best guest panelists, that is for sure. 
How long does everyone think jury deliberations uh, will last? I don't want to put you right on the spot, Jim, since you're new to the show. But do you think this jury, uh, which is set to hear closing arguments tomorrow, do you basically think that they have their minds made up already? You've been in the courtroom uh, to provide testimony. But on the flip side, uh, what do you think these jurors are thinking right about now? Well, I think a couple things I'm certain of. They're probably very glad the trial is over. <laughs> uh, they're probably all hoping that they reach a unanimous decision quickly um, and not come up with some, you know, combination or a hung type of jury. But um, I also I'm sure they're going to take the deliberations very seriously. And, uh, you know, for the time that this trial has been going on, they're not supposed to have talked to each other about the case. So this is going to be their first opportunity to discuss the case. and. You know, I think my experience with jurors has been that they do take their responsibility seriously. And this was a long trial. A lot of information was presented. And I would expect them to go through it seriously and methodically, not necessarily rehash the entire case in detail, but I think discuss it in terms that would give anybody an opportunity to raise reasonable questions about what was presented or was there anything left out or is there any other explanation for X, Y, or Z? But I would think based on the, you know, sort of overwhelming information that was presented that deliberations would probably take place over one, maybe two, maybe a little more than two days. And then they would return a jury, uh, excuse me, return a verdict. I would think within probably two days, be a guess. It's a guess. Uh, we'll interrupt this program for one moment for a public service announcement from Roger Rhodes. Susan Crone writes once again, hello from Colorado, under a tornado watch here, lots of thunder and lightning. Uh, Roger Rhodes is from Oklahoma, the capital right, you know of tornado. What, man, I'm going to help Susan here. You yeah. know what you call that? Spring. <laughs> that's what it is. Oh, tornadoes. No, man. If you grow up in that, that's just every year. That's that's just part of the culture of that area. You find you a good bomb shelter. You get in that. You hope it's not about the, the actual bombs, but the tornado. And it's like a, a locomotive going by, and you hope it doesn't tear up your stuff. Yeah, but that's just, oh, tornado. Uh, no, that's spring in that area. We've got, uh, speaking of Tornado Alley, we've got Missouri, we've got Australia in the house, and here we've got London, so uh, we are uh, all set to go. Um, it's an interesting question. I'm kind of, you know, there was no court, there, court was in session today, but they were speaking about uh, jury instructions and the verdict uh, sheet and all that sort of stuff in court today. Um, so we're going to go through some of the stuff over the last couple of days. Uh, one of them obviously relates to the next trial coming up, which would be Chad Daybell. Um, to you, Dr. Eldiki Tabori, you know, you always hear about uh, this term in the world of psychology about enablers or co-enablers. Did these two just feed off each other um, and just feed into each other's egos and need uh you know, to, to, to kind of run off into the Hawaiian sunset to be alone with each other? Yeah, that's sure what it looks like. I mean, they're, they're 
they meet and they're, you know, ego one, ego two, bouncing off of each other. The egos are, 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 you know, at play in a, in a very methodical way, um, in such a way that they're feeling superior. And if, if you look at all these interactions, I went back and watched the documentary over the weekend. Um, and if you look back on all these police interactions with, uh, Lori Vallow, she's like, nothing can touch me. Nothing's going to happen. You know, if somebody's coming at me saying that my child has disappeared, I'm like, oh my God, this is really scary. Or, you know, my, my ex-husband just died or something like that. You're going to have an emotional reaction. She had no reaction other than this aura of self-confidence, like consistently. And anybody who is confident does deflate every now and then because we're human. Uh, that's that's an excellent point. Um, Raj, you can pick up on that. You know, if they were kind of feeding off, it was like a feeding frenzy off of each other in a sense. Um, but yeah, also, I'm glad that they did catch him because I guarantee you, if they wouldn't have, his life would have been on the ticker. I guarantee you. She had a history of taking out people. She would have taken him out. You know. Luckily, he gets to be in prison is what I'm thinking because she, <laughs> she, had, she had the skill set of taking people out. He was next. And uh, do you think that Chad uh, will have any hesitation about turning, uh, knowing you know, what we know about his personality, about turning on her? Or do you think this love, which we'll get to in a little bit, <laughs> was, re was real, this quote-unquote love, these lovebirds? Are you asking me if it was real? Yes, sir. Yes, well, let sir. Me, not only no, but hell no. No, <laughs> I mean, those are two sick people, you know, that liked each other. They liked themselves and they saw each other and the other person is what was going on. And, uh, you know, I think Chad's going to do what benefits Chad. I think that is the style of Chad. You know, he's a user and she's a user. And anytime they get a chance of using something, they're going to do it. And But love, wow, no, I think that would be a, a real jump that either one was genuinely emotionally connected. No, you know, they were they were users. And that, that's what you saw. And they do what benefits them. And I think at the core, what we see with Lori is she, she is so disconnected that she created her own reality. And so what you see her responding to is a reality she created in her head. That's what's going on. That's why she's, she's so different is because we expect her to respond like a regular human being would if their child was gone. Wait a minute. She hadn't been in the regular world for a while. And, but she lives every day in the Lori world. And I'm sure if they convict her, she's going to cry victim. Oh, they're persecuting me. Oh, they're wrong. La, la, la. That's why there's no defense put up. Because how do you defend a, a made-up reality? That's what you've got in her world. And so Chad, I think, is just going to come in and do what benefits Chad, you know? Yeah, Rod, your audio is beautiful. Your video, you're a little stuck, but that's all good. Uh, you'll unstuck yourself uh, oh, at some point. Um, but uh, yeah. do you think um, 
So Jim, Jim seemed to think that uh, the verdict uh, deliberations could take up to two days. Uh, this person, Kimberly Allen from Toronto. Hello, Kimberly. Yeah. Uh, what's your prediction for a verdict here? Do you think these jurors already have their minds made up? Is it super quick? Yes, it's just a mon I mean, a mountain of evidence. And I totally agreed with Jim, man. I thought the timing, I would have said the same thing. You know, uh, if if they're really on the move, they're going to do it uh, Friday so they don't have to spend the weekend and all this. Uh, if not, if they really want to look serious, then they're going to go over the weekend. But, you know, I think they're going to be hard-pressed not to just say she's guilty. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. Uh, Barbara Ruel says, uh, Dr. Tabori, less than two hours of deliberation, in my opinion, so incredibly incriminating and no emotion nor remorse from Miss Lori Vallow-Daybell, life without parole verdict. Do you agree with that, uh, Dr. Tabori? I think what we've learned from the OJ case is that we're not going to do a two-hour deliberation, maybe a two-day deliberation. I think I agree with you on the Friday thing, Friday close of business or maybe lunch. Um, but yeah, two hours. No, I, I think they're going to give it their effort. There's, there's a mountain of evidence in the prosecution. There's nothing in, in the defense, um, to be a fly on the wall in the attorney room for the defense. I'd be really interested in hearing that because you want to put up a defense and she's probably going, no, they didn't prove their case. Right. Right. I would love to be a fly on Lori's middle wall. Is where I'd like to be. <laughs> Don't you know that is weird 101 right there. Man, she I, is, I, I'd oh. be terrified. That sounds like a horror movie to me. <laughs> um, Lisa Rumsey says, I hope Larry and Chad like toast because that's what they're going to be, followed by a more serious note from Tolly, who watches us in Israel. Hi, Joel, STS family and best guest. Love Dr. Roger. What's not to love? He is the future Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil wishes he was Dr. Raj. It's going to be a great show. A small relief from the madness in Israel. Dr. Roger words. Woo-wee. Um, <laughs> buddy. Get down. I like get... the cable guy on this, this uh, trial. Get her done. Get I smell her done. I smell a new STS shirt coming out soon with it <laughs> on it. Um, Jim's like, what have I gotten myself into here? But, uh, there's a madness brewing in Israel, by the way. So uh, hopefully things stay calm there as missiles are flying back and forth. Uh, Jim, to you, I'm always intrigued by this. So I'm sure you've covered high profile cases. You were there too long not to have uh, done that. Um, what is it like for investigators to you know, pull up to a scene like this that they found in Rexburg, uh, Idaho, where these two young bodies were there, and how are things amplified knowing that there are children involved and and murdered and brutalized in the most horrific way? Yeah, uh, those are horrible scenes to deal with, and I can tell you from personal experience and from working with you know very dedicated professionals over the years, uh, those scenes are treated with respect for the deceased, respect for the surviving family members. Um, and knowing that everything you do is going to be scrutinized, you know, 10 different ways by hundreds of different people uh, over a period of, you know, sometimes years. And you've got one chance at that crime scene to get it right. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's the physical process of 
making sure you secure the crime scene, you know, taking notes of who's coming and going, all of that. You want to get the best people and best equipment get the scene to actually look for the evidence. Sometimes that means slowing things down a little bit and waiting instead of, you know, if you discover a crime scene like that late in the evening, you don't want to start working on it that night. You want to secure the crime scene and bring in a good team with the right equipment and start working on it the next day. Sometimes the weather plays into that as well. Um, you know, but as far as just the, you know, emotional and mental aspects of it, at the time you're in that, you're 100% focused on what you're doing and you want to do it right. And again, you do it with a certain amount of reverence to the victim. Um, but afterwards, you know, I think that's when it hits you more on a personal level. Uh, it's such a busy period of time when you deal with something like that because everybody thinks about what they show on TV and the movies. You're out there processing a crime scene. You're looking for that you know, key piece like the hair, the, the hair in this particular case, which I thought was fascinating and the way it was wrapped in the tape, which to me tells even more of a story than it was just there, it's where that hair was. So excellent work on that particular piece of it. But, um, you know, as you're going through all of that, uh, people forget when you get back to the office, you've just started because now you have to document and log all of that evidence and do that properly. and write a detailed report about what took place during that part of the investigation and then follow up with lab reports and other specialized reports, uh, you know, tire print analysis, shoe print analysis, not saying that any of that came into play in this particular case, but those are all things that you look for as you approach a crime scene. Those are all things that have to be preserved and documented one way or another. And then, like I say, you have to do the follow up afterwards to link the, those pieces of evidence to a suspect. And uh, when you're flipping through the uh, metaphoric uh, picture book of your career over 27 years, do, do you stop on the pages where you see the pictures of those kids uh, over the years that have uh, been victimized? Um, are those the ones that kind of stick with you? That's what I've heard from investigators. Sure. Uh, you know, anytime that you're dealing with a crime of violence and you see what happens to a, to a human body and you wonder how could somebody do this to another person, and especially a child? How could somebody commit an act of violence against a child? And then when that's the person who's supposed to be their caretaker, supposed to be responsible for them, you, you just can't imagine how somebody lets themselves get to that state of mind for what? In this particular case, an insurance payout? It's, it's unbelievable. And one of the things that I've always said to my colleagues over the years is, you know, we try to, when we're investigating a case, when you're looking at what happened, we're trying to apply rational thought to somebody who's irrational. So it's hard to, it's hard to put yourself in that person's point of, you know, mindset to understand how they do it. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, that's important, but that's, you know, motive is never, ha never has to be proven to prove guilt. So... At the crime scene, you're really focused on the mechanics of it, like I say, and getting that right. It's later when you do have to deal with it personally and process those images. And, yeah, there's certainly cases from my career that, you know, will always uh, stay with me. And I just hope that in those cases, I did the best that I could to help resolve the matter and bring closure to a family and bring justice to, for the victim and to the person who did it.
And I'm glad Jim mentioned the hair. We'll circle back on that and get his perspective because that is uh, arguably the most important single piece of evidence in this case. Um, to you, Dr. Tabori from TGQ, question, is Lori a textbook narcissist? This goes, by the way, with a caveat that neither Dr. Tabori nor Dr. Rhodes have personally met Lori Vallow, but uh, they know enough about her. So uh, how would you answer that, Dr. Tabori? Again, not having met her, not able to fully diagnose her. This is just solely based on observations. She doesn't strike me as a narcissist. She does strike me as somebody with a delusional disorder, very depersonalized in, in, in the world where she is disconnected from everybody else's reality. Again, like what you were saying before, she is living in her own reality. And that reality is maybe narcissistic on some level that, you know, we are above and more spiritual than the rest of the world. But she herself doesn't strike me as, as truly personality disordered. Traits, sure. Personality disorder, not so much. Dr. Raj, how would you uh, diagnose? Oh, wait a minute. I want to jump in there. I totally agree with you. It is not narcissism. She's delusional. And, and what I'm thinking about, unless you get an investigator that's mentally ill, then you've got a good connect. But if, if you're trying to look at this from a normal, healthy thought pattern, it's not going to compute. That's what she's, that's where she's counting on the doubt issue that, that she's got, got her own narrative and she thinks nobody's going to be able to guess it because it's my own personal narrative. And that's her illness. You know, certainly can she show traits of things? Yeah. But is that the main line she's uh, lane she's driving in mentally? No, no. She's driving in the, I, I've made up a story. I totally have bought it. And I'm just seeing if you guys can guess it. And I, and if you don't think she's, sitting in jail, thinking about beating the FBI, you have lost it. That's what she, I guarantee you, that is jack, emotionally jacking her up. I'm going to beat those clowns is what she's thinking because she's not well. And Raj, do you think at this very moment that uh, she could still be believing that she will get off? Yes, yes. And, it, and because it has to do with her belief of narrative. She's created this story. If you brought a Bible to her and asked her to put her hand up and say, do you swear that this is the truth, nothing but the truth, holy truth, I guarantee you she would pass. Why? Because that's, that's what she believes. She genuinely believes it to the bottom of her heart. But it's not the truth. And there's the, there's the, the disconnect. People are trying to evaluate her based on, quote unquote, justice, quote unquote, fairness. Uh, yeah, that's the that's the judicial system. Thank God. But it doesn't apply to nutty. It doesn't apply to nutty. It applies to here. We've got a rational person and here we're being judged by rational people and we're making a rational decision. Wow. That isn't happening in this world. Not with Lori. No, she's nutty. 
she's looking to beat everybody else with her nuttiness. Uh, Nightwood writes, Dr. Tabori, is that a Hail Mary the defense just played? Uh, they basically uh, rested without uh, bringing a defense. Um, my question to you, uh, there was a moment yesterday where there were people thought Lori would in fact take the stand. Do you think she wishes she could take the stand? To Roger's point, do you think she believes that she can get in front of these jurors and convince them that she is fine and dandy, nothing to see here? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure that that's what she wanted. And when she wasn't getting her way, that's when, you know, the defense had to rest. But I'm sure that she wanted to get up there and explain away in her own you know, chaotic world, um, chaotic and vague world about what was happening um, and not making any sense to anybody except for herself and maybe Chad. Don't, don't you think her defense team listened to what she wanted to say and said, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to agree with you on that one. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, man, uh, Murdoch thought he could play that and, and he was a seasoned attorney, and he turned out to be the fool. Uh, I think they they took a lesson from that and said, ooh, we they got to hear what we wish we could have heard, and I think they went, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> this, this would be – you talk about open and shut. The, I think her power in all this is that they they can't get her reality. And they, the, I think her team thinks that's how she's going to get off. There's going to be somebody in there that says, well, since there's doubt in the reality, we can't convict her. And I'm sure she's in her own head thinking that it makes perfect sense, but <laughs> not to anybody perfect else. Sense. Wow. I love that. Perfect sense to Nuttyville. Wow. That's a, that's a tough get. That's a tough game. Yeah, huh? Do I get a nut? No. That's how I function in the world. Is not to get nutty and not to be nutty. Yeah. Hey Jim, uh, Barbara Kern writes, does the FBI agent, his name is Jim Eggleston, does he believe that there could be more arrests made in the Daybell case? Surely many other people were involved in this horrific crime. Uh there is a question that her circle of friends probably didn't commit crimes, but uh, they didn't raise many red flags when given the opportunities to do so. But the thing that has floored me, uh, one of the things the most is that the defense here didn't throw Alex Cox, the brother under the bus. He is, his phone at least, is present at almost every uh, crime scene, uh, murder scene, if not all of them. And he's dead. He uh, allegedly died of natural causes. Some people question that, but he's been cremated. So I don't think we will ever know. Um, but um, it's amazing to me, and I'm curious, you know, your reaction to it, that the defense did not try to throw him under the bus uh, and point the finger and say, look, Lori might be crazy, but her brother did all of this. Why don't you think that was used at all? Yeah, again, I apologize because I have not followed the details of this case closely, but you know, to kind of speak to that, uh, that particular issue, I might not be able to to address that. As far as any of her friends who should have raised a red flag, there's a big difference between what somebody should have ethically done, morally done, uh, you know, the right thing to do versus what are they legally accountable for. And unless they had 
guilty knowledge of her behavior unless they had, you know, something substantial that should have compelled them to go forward to law enforcement. Um, I don't see anybody else being charged. The other reason I don't see anybody else being charged at this point, and maybe I'm completely wrong because, again, I haven't followed the case in detail, but I would think that just as a strategy, if you had somebody else that was, you know, had some type of involvement or knowledge, like they say, guilty knowledge of what had happened, I would have thought that that person would have been uh, brought forward at trial as a witness, right? And and through some type of a deal, uh, been given the opportunity to testify in lieu of being prosecuted or, or for a reduced ch- charge, that type of scenario. And Jim, what's it like for you? Because you obviously come from a totally different place and a different perspective. But what is it like uh, specifically for you to watch these high profile cases? Are you looking at how investigators investigated? Um, I know from my own personal experience, for example, when I'm watching broadcast news, I'm thinking, wow, that was a horrible question. Or, wow, they could have said that in three words instead of 15 words. Um, So how do you... What is your lens that you look through these uh, cases? Yeah, I guess ever since I was little, I have always been interested in these things from the perspective of wanting to solve it, wanting to help uh, do the right thing, wanting to help people. That's one of the reasons I got into law enforcement in the first place. So I watch these things now because I, I just have a natural curiosity for it. I spent 28 years of my life in law enforcement. I'm still involved you know, as a licensed private investigator. I do a lot of uh, work for missing persons uh, to try to help people out. And I always learn something from these cases. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say that I watch to critique the work of other people so much. I learn from what other people do, good and bad, and try to apply that to the business that I'm still involved in, try to build on my experience and knowledge and always try to improve my own work, right? I can always learn from my own past mistakes. Um, but it's really, you know, natural curiosity and then just wanting to stay current, wanting to stay involved. Technology is always changing. Technology plays a larger and larger role in every type of criminal investigation these days than it did when I started my career way back then. Um, so you have to stay current, try to stay, you know, stay current, keep learning and evolve with those different scenarios. If I was a uh college graduate and I said, uh, Mr. Eggleston, what do I need to do to be a great FBI agent? What's what's your answer? It's, uh, you know, <laughs> hopefully our environment changes because right now it's difficult to encourage young people to go into law enforcement. We used to be, I think, more appreciated than now. So I applaud the men and women who are still out there in whatever capacity trying to trying to help society, trying to do the right thing. Um, but the uh, I think the answer that I used to give people when I was asked that question, I would generally suggest don't get a degree in criminal justice because you're kind of narrowing your field. Pursue the things that truly interest you and pursue something that could be applied more broadly. A lot of uh, police departments and federal law enforcement agencies see people coming through with, um, you know, kind of that same background. And you want to stand out. You want to have some other skill set. Uh, with the FBI, um, you know, there's a variety of things that people can do to enhance their chances of being selected uh, during the hiring process. And, you know, language skills, computer skills, those are all things that, like I say, always play a role. Law degrees, 
accounting degrees. Those have always been high priorities for the FBI. Um, but just, you know, I think young people should should pursue the things that interest them and pursue the things that give them the widest opportunities for success once they start their career. And uh, our society needs to get back to appreciating uh, and respecting law enforcement. It's a very, very difficult job. Um, that's my two cents. Bobby Henson writes, love your crib, Dr. Tabori, Trey Sheik, um, <laughs> followed by Oregon, Southern Oregon. And we've got Mississippi in the house. Uh, we've got everyone here, uh, even Wyoming. And someone is asking, is Roger awake? Roger is one of the most caffeinated people I know. It's just his, uh, <laughs> wait his a minute, Wi-Fi wait a minute. screen. Let's tell it like it is. I got a whole lot of giddy up and not much woe. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> where I grew up. <laughs> Dr. Roger Rhodes needs an entire line of graphic T-shirts with his sayings, and I'm going to uh, make sure that that happens. I'm telling you. This guy is the next Dr. Phil. So Dr. Phil better be nervous. Uh, hello from New Hampshire. Says Roger is in the portal. And then we've got, of course, Papa Bear, who holds a special place in my heart. She's in Moscow, Idaho. Now the infamous home to those four horrific homicides uh, at the hands of the accused suspect, Brian Koberger. Um, so back to Lori, and I think we're going to, hear some of the same things, but I'm curious about different aspects. And then we'll get into some of the text messages, which are quite amusing to say the least. Um, but Dr. Tabori, one of the things that we've seen juxtaposed with horrific images and very embarrassing text messages, we get uh, Lori Vallow, reports of Lori Vallow uh, in the courtroom, and she is laughing or joking with their attorneys. Um, if that was me, God forbid, and I am accused of killing my children, I am mortified, possibly suicidal, unbelievably depressed. Why is uh, why do we see the laughter? Why do we see the giggling? Why do we see this kind of like nervous, weird energy coming from her? Well, because she's kind of nervous and weird, right? I mean, there is that disconnect. I mean, it's like this, this reality, she's in this jail, in this county jail, where, wherever that is. And, you know, the county jails aren't great. I started my career in the LA County Jail and, you know, it's not pleasant in there. And now she gets to go to, to court and there's movie or uh, TV cameras in there. And, and, you know, she's in, she is in her own little movie. And yeah, it's that disconnect. She's laughing. She's not serious. You know, her kids are dead and she's laughing. Makes no sense. Absolutely not. Uh, Robin says hello from Idaho, obviously a state that is uh, on our minds between Koberger and this. Marshall Dove, hey, STS Nation. And then we've got uh, Miss We Last See, cozy in bed in Scotland, lest you think we are not a global show. We go from Scotland to the Oregon coast. Technology is truly uh, amazing. Um, and uh, someone asking right here, look at this, from Tina Mindful, Ildiko, does this name come from Hungary? Would you care to answer that? It does come from Hungary, although in every other part of the world other than Hungary, I am a Japanese man because that's what everybody <laughs> thinks my name is. 
<laughs> and uh, your mom knows and has she pronounced my name properly. Right here. <laughs> my mother speaks six languages, bless her heart. And uh, she's told she has a Hungarian accent in all of them. So oh, she has one completely. Yeah, yeah she pronounced The most she, useful language in the world. Yeah, she, she pronounced it on the money though, right? Oh, yeah. Perfectly. Much better than I can. Uh, Jim, so back to this hair that you mentioned, um, and you talked about how it kind of tells a story. I'd love for you to elaborate on it. Of course, we're talking about this hair that was found on a bag on duct tape uh, used to uh, basically um, hide and 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 uh, hold J.J. Vallow's body. So tell us about this hair and how important it is. Well, the fact that a hair was found at all is very important. And, you know, there are obviously other explanations for how that hair got there. But um, it certainly helps make a physical connection that up until that point, I believe was lacking. But the actual placement of the hair, the way it was found, if I understand it correctly, wrapped in the tape itself that was used to you know, wrap the, the body in the bag, um, that to me shows that that hair wound up there during the process of disposing of the body rather than had the hair been inside the bag and could have been from, you know, could have been, I believe, much more easily explained by the defense if the hair had been in the bag, for example, because that could be from, you know, prior contact. That's his mother, after all, whether she was present or not, you could make the argument that, well, the hair was from the couch and transferred to his body and so forth. But when that hair is actually wrapped in the tape that's used to wrap the body for disposal, that's a whole different time frame. That's a whole different set of circumstances. So to me, that's why I think it held a great deal of significance in this case. Um, and then Janet follows up here. Um, by the way, someone is telling me that uh, CART was not deployed because they were just missing too long. So they were not uh, deployed. I have not confirmed that, but that's what um, Aries Athena is telling me. So I will go with what she is saying. That would, yeah, that would make sense. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Janet, though, uh, says a question. This one obviously is for Jim. Chandler Law Enforcement only interviewed Lori and Alex one time, never went back, didn't even look up Alex's prior, which prohibited him as a felon to own a firearm. Would you call that dropping the ball? I would. Um, Jim, I know it puts you in a weird spot because you still, I'm sure, are friendly with guys there. But just curious, kind of broadly, uh, again, knowing this, does it change your uh, thinking about um, how they handled the situation? Well, so I don't want to, I'm not dodging the question because of, uh, you know, prior continuing context, because I like to call it the way I see it. But I will defer that question just because I really don't have the background on that, you know, information. If, if you're interested in having me back sometime, maybe I can get up to speed on that and I'd be happy to comment on it one way or another. And uh, you know, mistakes are made. I, you know, I look back at some of the cases I worked over the years and the cases that didn't get solved haunt me because I always ask myself, did I miss something? Could I have done more? You know, was I not, not focused on the right thing? Um, so, you know, even, even if you are critical or ask questions about an investigation, you know, it's, it's not done to tear down that agency. It's done to try to get things better the next time, I guess. We forget the idea. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Everybody's an expert when they're after the fact, but they weren't there. They weren't in the midst. 
And let me tell you, sometimes I'm fascinated by what you guys do under the circumstances you do it. It's almost superhuman. It's like, how in the world did they come up with that? You know, imagine being able to find the hair in the tape and analyze it. That Wow. That's beyond the... The pale right there. Yeah, and as someone pointed out, I mean Rexburg PD, who I believe found it, very small jurisdiction. It's we heard um a lot of criticism aimed at the Moscow PD uh ahead of the arrest of Brian Koberger. And it turned out they did really good from what we can tell, investigative work. They kept their uh chin down and their nose to the grindstone. And it looks, uh, at least right now, like it paid off. Obviously, there's a presumption of innocence, but uh, already uh, a lot of evidence um, pointing um, negatively towards Brian Koberger in that case. Uh, big thanks to Stephanie uh, Ella for the super sticker. Love that. Appreciate it. Someone responded to the earlier questions I asked the doctors about. Uh, Bethany Joy says, we care about this trial because five of our citizens are deceased and uh, probably no better reason uh, to care about it than that. I'm curious to get all three of your guys uh, and women's perspective on this. Um, so part of the drama yesterday, we found out that Judge Boyce um, issued an order saying that now the verdict will be live streamed when it is read. Dr. Tabori, uh, the judge had taken some criticism for not having cameras in this courtroom. Um, you know, uh, denying certain motions for transparency. People said he wasn't being transparent. Do you believe, first of all, that, uh, and I know, you know, this comes from your perspective, you're not an attorney, obviously, uh, but just do you feel that um, there should be cameras in public courtrooms and is this the right decision to read this verdict publicly? Yeah, I'm kind of mixed on that one. Um, you know, Courts are, are, are public forums, and so we have a right uh, to to go in there and watch these things. Um, on the flip side, you know, as we saw with the Menendez case, and with every you know huge case, OJ, and 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 going back to Charles Manson, um, just how the media interprets what's being what's being done, what's being said. Oh, look at that little smirk. Look at that, you know, color of lipstick that she's wearing. You know, it, it, does that mean she's crazy because it's hot pink? Who knows? Um, so yeah, I, I'm a little bit mixed on that. Um, I, I don't know, you know, I, I doubt people are going to riot because of this, but it's definitely going to, you know, cause some, you know, heartache on some level. Uh, Ann Vroom is a friend of the show. Uh, just uh, we always take everyone's perspective here. I think the negative take on public interest, characterizing the public as bloodthirsty or childish, uh, which both Raj and I kind of agreed about a little bit, is a rather arrogant misconstrual. People are primarily interested in seeing justice done, not to speak for Raj, but I will. But I think what Raj was saying is it's sort of a base instinct of humanity to try to solve these puzzles. Raj, is that correct? No doubt about it. And, and somehow we think that we're so mature when we grow up. And in an instant, you you draw back to 13 years old. Come on now. You know, quit trying to be such a super adult or thinking a super adult thinking. No, no. We're basically kids at heart. And so uh, if an accident happens, you're going to slow down. You're going to look at it. 
it's going to have a certain basic appeal to it. And it, who doesn't have an appeal of having an answer, being first, and being right? Man, that those are just base payoffs for people. I mean, they don't have to have an ulterior motive to have a childish desire. Come on. Yeah, we're sometimes... Uh, we dig a deep hole when all we need to do is deep, dig a deep. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I, I take a lot of pride in being a very mediocre, average adult. Dr. Tabor, you wanted to add something to that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's look, it would be nice to say that we're constantly looking to seek justice because justice always prevails when it goes in our favor and justice wasn't served when it doesn't go in our favor, right? Whatever mm -hmm. that may be. But, you know, the basis of it, really, we're seeking punishment. We're seeking punitive punishment, not necessarily justice. Sometimes those match up, sometimes those don't. Um, Jim, to you, I'm curious, because you were in law enforcement and you had to testify at times. Um, do you think there should be transparency in the court system? Should there be cameras in courts? And are you pleased that they're going to be at least reading this verdict uh, on a live stream? Yeah, that's a, that is a very interesting question. Uh, on the one hand, obviously, the public has an absolute right to be able to, you know, see what's going on in the courtroom. Um, but to have cameras in the courtroom, I think, can change the dynamic. Think about a witness, you know, for example, in this case, maybe one of Lori's friends who testified, I believe, right? And how difficult that is in the first place to get up and testify against somebody that you knew as a friend and you're doing it in a public forum, but then you add the aspect of a camera and then you add the aspect of knowing or wondering how far that camera reaches out into the public. And I think it just adds a new level of stress for witnesses. And I also think it can change people's focus and demeanor. And, um, you know, people tend to play to the camera rather than be themselves or, respond directly to the to the either prosecutor or defense attorney asking the questions. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, I guess, a double-edged sword. You know, I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for it, obviously. I absolutely understand and respect the public's interest in being able to watch these things. But I also think it's, you know, it's the, one of the cores of our society. It's such an important facet of our society to have justice done as well as it can be done, that we shouldn't introduce outside influences that might skew it a little bit. Well, and Jim, and another, wait, let me just interject. Sure. Film never dies. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the fact that, that the other doctor was saying Manson and, and OJ, Lord, help me. Think how long ago that was and what age we were when that happened. And you can watch that go on today. So imagine a friend saying something that if there's no cameras, I say it, it's in the ether. I don't have to think about it again. But if we put cameras in, 20 years ago, you could pull me up saying that. Wow, boy, the repercussions, the, the, the waves of the rock hitting go on forever and that cannot be minimized in this issue of cameras in the in the uh courts and that's interesting one of the things they said because they they are uh releasing audio of the court uh proceedings but they did say that they are not going to preserve the audio so basically when this trial is over 
uh, everything goes into uh, the ground, uh, except for the reading of this verdict, as far as what you know, we are told. But um, Vix Tech, this is interesting. Uh, and Dr. Raj, I'll throw this to you. So Chad's got older children. Question is, I wonder what Chad's kids are thinking. Any idea if you had to uh, postulate a guess here? Um, Sadness. Okay. That that's what I would pop. You know, th thank go thank goodness they're alive, and they, they and Lori didn't have it out for any of them. They weren't ever saw seen as a liability. Yay! Uh, but you know, are they ever going to stop loving their dad? And the answer is no. And are they sad that he uh, is involved in this messy situation? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's what they're going to carry with them throughout this is uh, how in the world can they be anti their dad and when are they ever going to stop loving their dad, I think are the key thoughts in those kids' minds. And uh, Collier Landry, uh, who made headlines years ago, his father was a uh, physician in a small town in Ohio, Mansfield, Ohio, and he murdered uh, his mother. Um, and Collier had us on his podcast. It's called moving past trauma, which is amazing. And he's got a show called survivor squad out now. Um, and he had us on his podcast and I have a, a very bad habit of taking over other people's podcasts. And I asked him, <laughs> he, his, his father's in prison, uh, turning 80. Uh, I said, you know, do you still love your dad? And, and he didn't, he didn't miss a beat. He's like, I love my dad, but, um, yeah, but he's uh, he said he's a psychopath and a sociopath, but he's my flesh and blood. And uh, it's giving me the chills right now because um, the father tells him back that he loves him. But it's um, obviously, you know, everything that they've had to endure. And he's still a complete narcissist and refuses to admit what he did to the mother with overwhelming evidence, still trying to skate around it. Um, so, you know, it, it's, uh, it's difficult. Um, and, uh, obviously I'm not in those shoes, but it was interesting to hear that. Uh, the trip show says, this is a uh, fun part of the show. I'll tell you what the jurors are thinking right now. Lori brings a whole new meaning to riders on the storm. For those of you who don't know what the storm is, we'll, we'll get to the storm in a minute. I like to say that for the end of the show. Um, so not too many people blush, but, uh, before we get there, Jim, this kind of came up earlier. Any doubt that if Lori and Chad were still free, that other people's bodies would show up, uh, possibly even Chad's body, uh, if they were still out and about? Yeah, I think, you know, based on what we know from the trial and based on speculation about all the other people around them that wound up meeting bad demise, I think uh, Dr. Rhodes hit it, you know, right on the head when he said that uh, this might this might have saved Chad's life, right? Amen, amen. Right. Don't, amen. don't think it, the 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 clock wasn't ticking on that dude. Right. It was. It, he his he his uh, expiration date was written down in her head. Yeah, one 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 or the other, you know, you would think would be at risk of disappearing because they held each other's secrets. And once you got rid of the other, then, you know, that would make the survivor less likely to wind up where they are right now. So I would have been very reluctant to uh, become a 
uh, you know, somebody named on an insurance policy in that type of relationship. And Jim, I mean, Jim, what do you do you think the motive here? So at the you know, the during opening statements, the state said it's all about money, sex, power. But do you think because you mentioned a couple of times, do you think the motive was financial more than anything else here besides outside of all the crazy cray? Well, again, you know, without having really followed this case, but money is the component. Uh, money is a component of freedom. So I think what it was really about was in their minds, and both the doctors have talked to their you know state of mind, especially Lori's state of mind. Um, but this whole process of you know getting rid of the children and acquiring the money and getting rid of the the wife if that if they were involved in that and acquiring the money, it's all a quest for freedom. You know, the money gives them freedom to move about and, and live the type of life that they that they aspire to. And in, you know, going back to one of the first things that you asked me to talk about was, um, you know, my experience with the false allegation of child abductions, those types of cases. One of the things that you look for in those types of investigations are uh, if the child is missing or, you know, the victim of a crime, uh, did that child did that child pose some type of an impediment to the relationship? Was that child a drag on the family because of a learning problem or disability? Um, you know, did that child uh, create friction between the spouses? So getting rid of the children, getting the money, that's all a part of getting more freedom, I guess, is how I would summarize it. Hmm. Uh, Lindsay Shea, what's up, SDS Nation? Jersey girl here. She knows I'm from Jersey. Uh, huge Dr. Raj fan. Ah, we. I can't do it, but it's close <laughs> enough. Um, we. <laughs> this is this is interesting, Dr. Raj. To you, uh, WD forty guilty just in time for Mother's Day. Priceless. Um, do you think if she is convicted and she is sitting in jail and hasn't been moved to prison or is already in prison on Sunday, do you think she'll um, reflect on being a poor mother? No, she'll talk to her about appeal. You know, she's already planning on that if something goes wrong. Uh, she, I guarantee you, does not believe they'll convict her. She's done all this in her own narrative, and her own narrative is like a Disney movie. She's nutty. Come on now. No, I, I, we, you, you just can't play out how she's going to go. But I guarantee you, whatever she does, it will be pro-Lori. She will she will take everything as her as the victim and that people don't understand. That I guarantee you that's what you'll hear. It poor me and you guys don't understand. I'm right there with you on that one. Yeah. Uh Angela, by the way, writes tornadoes in Arkansas. Uh, <laughs> and not in, but and Arkansas. Whoever that was in Colorado, let us know that you're okay. So Dr. Raj doesn't have to worry tonight. Um Sally Vella. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Tabori, to you, um, Chad left the breadcrumb of, a breadcrumb of evidence for the FBI to use of when, where, and who by his text. He's going to use Lori as the mastermind, and he was controlled by sex. Do you think that this is a plausible defense? Do you think that, they, and I know you're not an attorney, but uh, just using kind of you know logic from what we have uh, learned about this case, do you think that that could happen, or is he going to say to his attorneys, "I am so in love with this sex goddess of mine that I don't want to 
throw her under the bus in any way. Yeah, that's that's also a good question. You know, I, I, when you get some space from your sex goddess, you start to realize she's not that much of a sex goddess to begin with. Um, you know, depending on how much this egotistical man wants to spend time in jail, he's going to throw whatever he can, whatever defense he can at the wall and see what sticks. And if that's what sticks, then that's what sticks. Um, no, I think they're talking about, will she have a reaction? No reaction because she was part of it and knew all about it. It's kind of an interesting question. If she's convicted, uh, Dr. Raj, will we see emotion from her? Will, will she, will we see tears? And if we do see tears, are those tears for herself? Well, I, if you see any reaction or any tears, you will have to frame it in the narrative of Lori. Here's the problem is people are trying to normalize to say, well, it once they say she's guilty, she's going to come to a reckoning. They're delusional. That's not the case. No. It, my thinking is this, it, this is a continuation. If she wants, I would think she's thinking about where can I get tried again where I can be on camera. <laughs> Uh, Dog Mom, right on cue. Love Dr. Roger. Ellen, look at this. He's got a, uh, a whole fan base now. I love Roger. He's perfect. Even that hair is perfect to his. Uh, and then right here, Christina <laughs> Rahill says, delighted to see Dr. Roger on the panel tonight. His slam dunk, let's cut to the chase, is so refreshing. And with that, I just took away the question I was going to ask of you, Dr. Tabori. So I'll go on to another question. Um, and that has to do with jurors. Uh, so there were reports, by the way, that, you know, they, they weren't talking to each other. They didn't know each other six weeks ago. And, uh, now they were laughing with each other, um, you know, kind of fist bumping each other during the breaks yesterday. They're not allowed to talk about the case to each other, but what do you think, um, you know, psychologically it is like to go down this road of being a juror where you're getting paid five or 10 bucks a day. It's around that. Um, and you are now kind of given a new family of sorts that you will be tied to for the rest of your life. What do you think that experience is like for these people? Oh, I'm sure that, you know, that there is that level of connectedness that, you know, they're the only ones who know what is going on with the other person. Nobody else in the world gets it, but they get it because they're experiencing it just like you know, their, their neighbor is on that same note, you know, they're, they're listening to all this evidence. I'm sure not all of it is interesting for the last six weeks or however long this has been going on. And I'm sure it's overwhelming and I'm sure it's exhausting and I'm sure they want to get back to their regular lives. And you're, you're dealing with the lives of, of human beings and you're making a judgment call on that. So that, that does a lot on your psyche. You know, it puts you into turmoil, puts you into this cognitive dissonance, kind of what we were talking about a little bit ago. It's, you know, I can love my evil father and still not like his evil ways. Right. Um, you know, this jury is like, we can judge this person and and try to get some justice but at the same time it's do i want to be responsible for putting this person away forever um i remember the other question that uh one of the uh members of sts nation had uh you said they're not narcissists you and dr raj agreed about that but 
Someone wrote, are they two psychopaths? What about that, Dr. Tabori? Kind of falls under the same category. Um, you know, do they have tenden tendencies towards that? Yeah, I mean, they killed people, of course. Um, but I think it's more based on, a, you know, a shared delusional disorder, what we used to call a folia do, which is a shared psychotic disorder. Uh, Izzy Day, uh, Dr. Raj, to you, I hope Chad Daybell pleads the family has suffered enough. Do you think Chad Daybell is sitting in his jail cell and the number one concern right now is how the families are feeling or how Chad will uh, fare? <laughs> yeah, it, yes. Oh, he is sitting in jail, concerned about others. In what world is that going on? Come on. No, he, he's a Chadite, man. Hey, I'm only thinking about me. What about me? Not about this nutty, uh, this love interest I had and who doesn't understand it was all about sex. Yeah, he he's all about whatever benefits him. That's what he's thinking about now. That's what he's doing now. That's his life course. So uh, I think what we'll see after this is done, whether she's convicted or not, it will all be about what benefits him. Now, if he does something that doesn't benefit him to help her, wow, now that'll be a story. That'll be an interesting moment. That will be what we call out of character. <laughs> Salty cowgirl, thank you for this. Uh, I believe that Lori's smug and carefree attitude all through this trial, especially during the horrific testimony concerning the kids, will greatly affect the jury's verdict. Dr. Tabori, um, she might not be of uh, sane mind and normal mind, but the jurors probably are. Um, you think they're mortified by her reactions and the juxtaposition to what they are seeing and hearing? Yeah, if they're not, they should be. I mean, I mean, it's a little odd. Um, but again, I don't know what they're seeing from their their POV here. We're seeing it from our perspective outside through the media. So that might be fleshed out in, in, in a way that they're not seeing it. But if they're seeing what we're seeing, sure. It, it makes me think, why didn't they go for a defense not guilty by reason of insanity? They couldn't prove it is why. I guarantee you they were looking for it. They, they thought they could hook that. They couldn't catch that fish. That's the only reason you, they didn't do that. Yeah. And, and uh, Dr. Raj gave a public service announcement regarding tornadoes. I will now ask for another one regarding parenthood. And kind of <laughs> this, this, this comment caught me in a weird way. I have the best parents. My mother is a wonderful co-host. But Emily says, could you imagine having Chad and Lori as parents? Um. I'm writing a book right now, as many people know, and it is advice from my Holocaust survivor slash therapist slash co-host mom. And we talked about parenting um, and she had some interesting takes. But Dr. Raj, yeah, if you have parents, uh, you don't need a license for this. It's not like, you know, when you go fishing or hunting, you need, anyone can have parents and there are a lot of crappy ones out there. So if you are, I don't know, I mean, depressed, anxious, angry. Um, cynical because you feel like you have, uh, you know, pulled the, 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 the horrible ticket in the lottery and you got the horrible parents, what sort of advice do you give someone if they think that their parents are horrendous? Because there are plenty of them out there. Yeah. Create emotional space. Okay. Uh, 
everybody at some point thinks their parents were idiots. And sometimes they feel like they're geniuses. But at the core, they love their parents because that's who they got in the lottery of parenthood. Okay. But if you're going to have any, if there were any children involved, you want to encourage them what would need to happen to create physical and emotional space and then help them build strong boundaries toward their parents because it's like it would be considered an emotional infection. You don't want these people to affect, infect their children. And so uh, that would be important because if, if they're close, will they infect them? You bet. Lord D. Yeah. Uh, I, love, but, I love that. Emotional infection. Do not be emotionally infected. I love that. The second public service announcement in just one show. Um, Jim, back to you, and then we'll start to wind things up here. But um, you alluded to uh, digital forensics, um, you know, really changing the landscape. Uh, they went to the old iCloud and found a gazillion texts between Chad and Lori. Um, and let me just uh, frame one of them, which leads us into the storm, and then we'll wrap it up. But we hear about James and Elena. These are kind of alter egos of Lori and Chad. Um, and Chad went, obviously, by James. Lori went by Elena. And it starts with them visiting a temple and returning to a hotel for, quote, unquote, additional romance on the couch. They calm, they calm their nerves enough to give each, this is a quote now, to give each other a blessing. As James placed his hands on her head, he connected with Elena's true eternal self. He knew he was in the presence of an exalted goddess. Two questions for you. How important are these texts in terms of evidence? And secondly, as an investigator, you start going through these, combing through these. What are you thinking in your own mind? Well, again, you know, difficult to apply rational thought to somebody who's acting irrationally. And uh, going back to what both the doctors have discussed already, the delusional you know, mindset of uh, especially Lori. But they, they seem to have had this. And Jim just froze. Oh, did I freeze up? No, you're good. You're good. It might have been me for a second. You're okay. good. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, they they certainly created a fantasy world, if not being totally delusional in their in their thought process. Uh, the text messages that I thought were more telling from an investigative standpoint were the text messages talking about the insurance policies and, and uh, talking about, you know, how close somebody is to zero or a hundred. And I guess that corresponds to their, their worth as a, as a victim of a crime. If the insurance pays out from what I, from what I gathered from those text messages, I think those messages were more significant in terms of the investigation. Maybe they didn't reveal as much as, a, as the, a, about their mindset. In fact, those are more rational type of messages where somebody's motivated by the insurance policy. And that's why they commit the crime. So, uh, you know, the doctors might have a, a lot more insight into that fantasy world that, that those text messages where they took on those different personas and the, the, the things that played out. And when Lori found out she was not getting the insurance money, I believe the quote was, it feels like a spear was thrown through my heart. Um, she was devastated uh, by that. If I was a juror and I'm not, that would be all I needed to hear to Jim's point. 
uh, that would be a guilty for me because it was all about the money, it sounds like. Um, to you, and again, we'll wrap momentarily. Uh, first off, Dr. Tabori, you'll be the one to blush tonight. Um, the <laughs> FBI agent had the uh, wonderful task of explaining to the jurors that the word storm was a euphemism for the word penis. And in this text, Chad says to Lori, I completely agree. We were definitely in new territory in your bedroom. Elena's magic hand has gripped the storm, barely able to breathe as intense waves wash over them. What you um, mean is a small wind. Come on, let's get real. It was a, storm. It was a small gust. <laughs> it was no tornado, right? Oh, absolutely not. No, no, it didn't ruffle anybody. Listen, if you, my mom who went through the Holocaust, she says, if you don't laugh, you got to have a sense of humor. I mean, it is so insane. But uh, Joyce's comment following this is uh, love and obsession are commonly mistaken for each other. Do you think that after the verdict for Lori Shallow instead of Vallow, that others will be brought up in charges? I mean, what about this notion of love versus obsession? And what do you make of this? Storm. I mean, these are, are grown ass adults to Roger's point. I mean, I guess there's a lot of arrested development out there, but Dr. Tabori, what's, what's your take on this? Oh, people of all ages confuse those two love obsession, love and lust. You know, we meet somebody we, you know, love at first sight. No, how can you love somebody at first sight? It's lust at first sight, but it's not love. You don't know that. organization. You could. The what organization? The Disney organization. Well, okay, yeah. Yeah, love it. Scott Women. <laughs> hey, hey, Raj, Aries Athena says, what was the most cringe part of the text messages for you? I'm not asking you that. She says, mine was cheek to cheek, loin to loin. I mean, Raj, what was going on in these exchanges? It is um, absolutely like humorous and insane all at once. But what was going on in your professional opinion. Oh my Lord. Uh, I think they knew how to feed each other emotionally or and through verbalization. So anything they said, they thought would put wind in the sail of the other one and move the agenda forward. That's what was going on. You know, they, they were. how do you talk about two sick people sexually involved? How do you say Ooh, ooh, yuck! Yeah, no. Say it cheek to cheek and loin to loin. Yeah, oh, and there's, and yuck to yuck. There's, there's, a, lot, all that. there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, t-shirt graphic tees that can be uh, made up from this trial. <laughs> um, the man who was in the FBI for more than 27 years. He is Jim Eggleston, retired FBI special agent. Uh, he maintained a top secret security clearance with special access to sensitive uh, compartmented information. Uh, and he was one of, one of the original members of the Arizona Child Abduction Response Team. We bring you the very best, and Jim is one of them. He's now uh, the founder and owner of Baseline Investigations. And Jim, I see a stack of books. Have you written some books? No, I uh, I hope that maybe someday those are some of my uh, books for my career, you know, from training and things I picked up along the way. You definitely uh, need to write a book. Um, what what uh, 
what are you anticipating uh, over the next couple of days? I believe you said, you know, you think that we'll obviously get these closing arguments and then uh, you think it will take a day or so worth of deliberations. Uh, anything you're looking for specifically? Well, you know, again, I would I would think that just based on the fact that most juries take their responsibility seriously and because of the large amount of evidence that was presented over the past, what, six weeks now, I think that's why it would take some time. They may have, you know, made up their own minds. They may come to a consensus rather quickly, but I think just as a matter of practice and wanting to do the right thing the right way, I think they will take time just to, you know, at least go through things again. That's why I think it'll take a day or two. Um, the reading of the verdict should be very compelling, I'm sure. A lot of people are going to be tuned into that. And then we'll see what happens going forward, uh, what uh, Chad Daybell and his uh, defense team decide to do. Plant piggies, right? It's Dr. Raj. I love the painting behind you. For those who don't know, Dr. Roger Rhodes is a senior therapist at the Pace Center in Greenville, South Carolina, specializing in dysfunctional relationships, which is absolutely perfect for the uh, Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell story. Uh, he's worked with inmates inside the prison system. Um, how do you think? Uh, how do you think she's going to do in prison, assuming she's convicted, Raj? And any uh, final thoughts you might have? I believe she will start her own uh, crowd in prison. Okay, uh, I think she's she knows how to captivate people. She knows how to minister to people. And so she's going to be a prison minister, I believe. And and she's going to have the cult of prison is what we're going to see. So look for some T-shirts from uh, her events here is what I would believe. I love it. Uh, Darius says, no goddess shaming. Uh, Stephanie says, Lori's middle name is Delusion. Uh the woman who thinks she has a male Japanese name, but it's really Hungarian, is Odiko Tabori. That's Doctor to You, featured in the A E documentary about another dysfunctional family, the Menendez brothers, a story that we've been following. Uh, she received her PhD in clinical psychology back in 2003, and she's been a psychologist and neuropsychologist since 2004. And uh, Doctor Tabori, I know I asked you this last time, but you're a resident psychologist at the Holly, is it the Hollywood improv? No, One of them. Laugh Factory. Laugh Factory. Um, who's crazier comedians or Lori Vallow Daybell? Oh, there's no comparison. Absolutely no comparison. We're going with Lori on that one. Oh, I thought you were going to say. No, no I'm going to pull star. The way no. you set that up. I don't know. So what do you think? Um, what are you anticipating? A very quick decision here. And uh, do you think that Lori has sealed her fate with uh, talk of the storm and talk of wanting to eliminate her children? Is this is this over and done with now, do you think? It's over and done with temporarily. I think it's going to pop back up in a few years. Absolutely. But yeah, that's after she has created her, her prison church and has her own followers <laughs> there. And when you say it'll pop back up, do you think because of the appeals process? Is that what you're oh, saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's going to be appeals. There's going to be books. There's going to be, you know, there's always also going to be another cult that pops up too. And this will be referenced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Nightwood 
round it out here with Dr. Rhodes' words of wisdom. And uh, wait a minute, let me, let me. Words of wisdom is hey, they're still talking about Waco and they burned down Waco years ago. Don't yeah. think that, that they're not going to do uh, show after show about this craziness. For and, years that was, and that was all caught on film. Uh, some of this was caught on film. By the way, if you missed it, we had Sky Borgman, the director of Sins of Our Mother, uh, who the Netflix talk about all this. So that is definitely worth the watch. A huge thanks to all of our best guests. It's not just a tagline. We've got the best guests in all of true crime. Quick programming note. We've got an all-star panel tomorrow night as we uh, break down closing arguments. Who knows? We could have a verdict tomorrow, and we'll be on this as well on Friday, because if we don't have a verdict tomorrow, it's going to come on Friday. And if it doesn't come Friday, we will continue to stay on it. Until then, love you, America, and uh, love you, L.A., love you, Arizona, love you, South Carolina. Till next time. Meet Nate. By day, he works in IT. But when he gets on the bike, he becomes... Nature Nate. An outdoorsy type with his head in the clouds and a weak supply of trail mix in his cargo pants. Nature Nate leaves no trace, except for native wildflowers. If a tree falls in the forest, he'll help it get back up. And Nature Nate rides with Geico, because getting specialty coverage for his motorcycle is the natural choice. Geico Motorcycle. Expert coverage for both your sides. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score, and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.